Well, good morning again. So uh, what that video was is it, it comes from our international mission board. So we are a Southern Baptist church. Southern Baptist churches are, they're individual churches all throughout America who say we want to collectively work together to promote missions nationally, internationally, and for the education of pastors. So um, this is, we, we do a Lottie Moon Chris, uh, Christmas offering as Southern Baptists. And I want to start educating the church on what that offering is. So we, we give a portion of, of our tithe and offering go to the Southern Baptist. But the Lottie Moon Chris, uh, Christmas offering goes directly to missionaries. There's not one penny spent on administration or anything that is not missions, missionaries on the field. Um, you'll, you'll remember the young man we had, him and his family that we prayed over. They're in one of those countries that we can't say for uh, safety reasons. And I was on the phone with him a couple weeks ago and I was like, hey, this is like budgeting season for the church. What do you need? And he said, nothing. We need your prayers. We need, uh, if y'all would just give to the Lottie Moon offering, because we can give directly to them. He said, if y'all would give to the Lottie Moon offering, that's, that's what we need. Because the Lottie Moon offering is the, the, the main means of support we have to keeping missionaries on the field. So over the month of December, you're going to find stuff out about it. We're not doing the, uh, the, the missionary shakedown. We're, we're not, you know... We're not going to be hitting you up for money all the time, but what I'm going to ask you to do, if you feel led or compelled to give through the month of December, just make that known on your, um, there's a card in the back of the, 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 the chair, like Lottie Moon, or if you can't remember Lottie Moon, IMB, missions, whatever. We'll get it there. And we'll, if you give online, we have, we'll have a drop-down menu where you can designate it for that. But uh, the, the Lottie Moon offering goes directly to, to these guys. And, you know, the, the, the thesis of the IMB is the greatest issue in the world is lostness. And this is one way we as a congregation get to fight back against the darkness in the world by supporting these missionaries on the field. So let's pray and then we're going to dive right into the text. God, you are king of our soul. And King, we ask you that you would lead us on whether or not it is for us to give in this. You have all the money, you have all the resources but it's our end to be obedient. If you're calling us to give, I pray that we would be faithful. Lord, and we pray for these missionaries that they would be emboldened to go out and, and to, make, to make disciples. God, and this is the season I would suppose is the hardest for missionaries to be on the field. They're seeing all the pictures of their families meeting and having Thanksgiving and doing Christmas, all, all those things that they grew up with. Lord, I pray that you would just encourage them. I pray that they wouldn't feel broken for what's being missed, but instead that they would be excited about what's being had and where they're at. Lord, I pray for us right now as we look into the text. Open our eyes, convict our hearts. Lord, we pray that your spirit would do the work of convicting of sin, righteousness, and judgment on us. And then he would embolden us to, to go out and walk accordingly. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So if you will, open in your Bible to 1 Peter 4. And this uh, sermon is entitled Suffering in Service to the King. Our series that we're working through right now is called Living for What Lasts. We're going to take a break and do some Christmas stuff starting next week, but, and we'll pick it up in the new year. But So suffering in service to the king, living for what lasts, because we know the only thing that will last will be the kingdom of God. And we want to devote our lives to his cause and to his purposes. Peter is about to get real practical on how we are to endure suffering as a believer. And you're like, Cody, I remember 30 seconds ago when we read the text, it didn't say anything about suffering. Context is key to understanding. It's like a, a, a gem set in a, in a necklace or in a ring. Just because it, it doesn't say it here, that's the context of everything we've read is suffering. And this is Peter, it's God through Peter giving us very specific ways of how we are to endure in suffering. So this passage is going to show us the tools God's given us to serve the lost, to serve the suffering. It's going to show us the tools for us to endure so let's take a second and get in the mindset of these Peter, these people that Peter, that he's writing to. He's writing to churches spread all across the Roman Empire um, in the first century. These people, these places that they were living, they were agrarian societies or farming societies. And they would worship gods. This makes a lot of sense. By the way, you can see this in Hinduism right now. Hinduism is a fertility cult. These were all fertility cults. They worshiped gods that would make their crops grow, their animals multiply, and their wives get pregnant. These pagans, they, they were worshiping fertility gods. And whether it was a god of war or not, they were all still fertility gods. The festivals were set up in a way that their gods would be pleased with them and that they would bring the rain, they would grow the food, they would do, they would do the different things. That, that they would bring prosperity to the flock, to the family, and to their finances. So that's, that's the culture of the world that they were living in in the Roman Empire, no matter where they lived and what, what gods that they were living under at the time. Yahweh God was the only one that was different. So imagine you and your little pagan family doing your, your pagan worship stuff, and all of a sudden, in your little village on, on this corner of the Roman Empire, pops up these people that say that Jesus is God, and your crop doesn't come in. Whose fault is that? I mean, we, we all struggle with it, that causation is correlation, right? Or correlations causation. So they would say, hey, the reason we lost this war or this battle is the Christians. Let's run them out. The reason that my wife uh, is infertile, it's the Christians. We got to get them out of here. The reason that my, you name it, it was the Christians' fault. And they, needed, they, they would either um, stop doing business with them, they would kill them, they would run them out of town. And they, 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 would, they would just not stop associating with them. And you got to remember, there's no welfare system at the time. So if your thing wasn't bought at market, what happened to your family? They were hungry. 
You're watching your, your family starve because you're now a Christian. That's hard to do. So you got two choices. Stay and starve or move. Christians were, were facing this type of persecution. They were being ran out of their homes. Well, often when we think about persecution, we think about a persecution that would lead to death, which don't get me wrong, that's going on here. Um, something that Christians have been dealing with since the first century. But for us in our context, I think the persecution that often precedes death is a persecution that looks like a loss of income, um, cultural isolation, the loss of your home, the state coming and separating you from your family by putting you in prison. The text we looked at last week, it was encouraging believers saying suffering is co coming, not suffering might be coming. Suffering is coming. Get your mind right. Get your mind right. And believers, that is the call still this morning. Get your mind right. And he gives us some ways that we would get our mind right. We can see in our, in our situation, if nothing changes, we're heading to a day when the world will try to silence or cancel Christians in a much stronger way than they currently are. Uh, we can already see that hate speech is going to be the new pandemic. And unless you fall into this Orwellian groupthink like was required in the Roman Empire, you're going to find yourself canceled, facing the loss of income, being ticketed in lawsuits, imprisoned. And, you know, it's a lot to get your mind right for you to suffer. But suffering, persecution affects more than just you. We have to also be prepared to serve the body because if persecution comes to you, what's going to happen to your family? You're going to have to watch them suffer for a loss of income and a loss of home. The body needs to be ready to serve one another. The body needs to be ready to serve uh, the families of those who are affected. It's, this is a heavy message, and the call is to get your mind right. God is preparing us for how we are to live even in suffering as individuals and as the church. So let's, what's true? God supplies everything we need to serve him well. The comma's there, even in our suffering. So what do we do? We are to serve one another even when we suffer. So let's, let's look at Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied graces. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves 
as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word. So the biggest chunk of what we're going to look at is verse 7, because I think verse 7 drives the rest of it. And verse 7 is preparing yourself to serve the suffering. So, verse 7. It begins with saying, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. There's, there's something about a looming deadline, isn't there? Looming deadlines bring anxiety. Looming deadlines make us feel uneasy. I remember as a student, deadlines normally meant cramming in as much information the night before as I could to go take a test. Unfortunately, most of my 20s, I was a student. Couldn't get it done quick like everybody else. And, you know, you, you're, you have that, that paper due. You have that test coming. And, you know, you, you think, okay, in the last day and a half, I can fit in an entire semester's worth of work. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. But for most of us, a, a deadline means anxiety. Deadline means stress. Some of you feel the looming deadline of the end of all things being at hand. You know, there's a day coming when God will judge the living and the dead. And like a student, you're trying to cram in as much as possible with the time you have left because you feel inadequately prepared. You know what you did with the previous time. Whether it's anxiety or knowing you're not right with God, you feel like you have to do all this flurry of religious actions to somehow make God pleased with you. Whether it's uh, the Lord's Supper or baptism or maybe there's some sort of giving that it just makes you feel like God's going to love me more because I did this. God's going to somehow be more pleased with me because I did this. Maybe you've done so much bad and you recognize you've done so much sin. You feel like with a little bit of time left, I got to cram as much good in as I can. And then, then I'll be presentable to God. Well, that's, that's not the gospel. That's actually the opposite of the gospel. That's, that's being presentable to God based on you. The gospel is not about your good works. The gospel is all about God. God is the gospel. Jesus, the gospel is about Jesus' good works, not yours. We could not get to God, so God came to us. God lived a perfect life. God dwelled on earth for 33 years, proved himself to be God, and allowed people to execute him for our sins. Three days later, rising from the dead, defeating sin and death. Now, if we come to him by faith, not by works, not by religious actions, then, here's the if-then of the, the, the Bible. If you come to him by faith alone, then you get salvation. Then you get salvation. The deadline is coming. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want you to, to hear me. The deadline is coming. 
There will be a day when you stand before God Almighty and you have to give an account for the things that you've done. It will be a great and a terrible day. It will be a day filled with fear if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus. Because if you've not, if you choose not to believe in Jesus, if you choose not to make him Lord and Savior of your life, you are choosing, I want you to understand this, it's unequivocal. If you choose not salvation in Christ alone, you are choosing hell. Hell's not forced on anybody. Hell is chosen by everyone who goes because they've rejected the king. But if you do put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And you're not just saved from hell. Y'all hear me say this every week. That's, that's a weak gospel. You are saved to heaven. You are saved to reign with God. You are saved for the rest of the time you have left on earth for the Holy Spirit to be living in you and working through you. You're saved to God, not just from hell. For the rest of us who are in Christ, though, the end of all things is at hand, and Peter is calling us to get our mind right so that we would finish well in the faith. And you might be feeling like, you might be feeling I feel this, that the world around us is out of control. I feel like that's a, 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 a perfectly natural feeling, especially for our present context. Not to be the bearer of bad news, but let's, let's just rewind a little bit of what's, what we've lived through in the recent past. In the last few years in America, we've seen most of our major cities burn. We've seen riots across the country. We have two wars currently happening that could possibly draw us into a global conflict. Um, over the last few weeks, we've seen massive pro-Palestinian demonstrations across America. We're in these specific demonstrations. That wouldn't be the, a problem, except for they are openly supporting terrorist organizations. People feel perfectly comfortable right now going and sitting on TV and, and spouting anti-Semitic hate speech. We've seen more cultural progression for the negative in the last three years than I think we've seen in the last 50 years. Oh yeah, a few years ago there was a global pandemic the geopolitical landscape feels like it is rapidly shifting radically anti-God in its agenda. In a three-year time frame, we went from culturally rejecting, fundamentally rejecting this idea of transgenderism. Now it is common language in our homes and in our schools Life has been so devalued that in some countries they've passed laws in favor of assisted suicide. Many of these countries are countries that America normally follows in its progressivism. We're normally five to ten years behind them. If you follow Christian news at all, you've seen people who have been influential nationally engulfed by scandal. Other leaders have left the faith They've deconstructed their faith. 
Traditionally, major churches are shifting to, to, to cultural and theological liberalism. Need I go on? You, don't you just feel good about yourself this morning? <laughs> There's a reason we feel anxious and we feel stressed. But the message we are receiving from Peter this morning, it's on time because he was writing to a people who were also living through their very own cultural and political dumpster fire. He was writing to a people whose world felt out of control. Peter tells us exactly what we need to do to all this chaos. And it says it exactly in your text. Be self-controlled and be sober-minded. Stop getting so worked up. Stop allowing these things to control every conversation and every thought that you have. Be aware, be informed, devote yourself to God in prayer. We are to be self-controlled. We are to be sober-minded, not for piety's sake. What does it tell us that the sake that we're supposed to do this for? Look at your text. For the sake of our prayers. That's a purpose clause. For the sake of our prayers. Where is the only real power that you have in your life? Prayer. You have no ability to change any of these global situations. You have prayer. You have the ear of God. And church, do you believe that God listens to you? Um, based on that response, we, we probably are struggling with sober-mindedness and self-control. Do you believe that God actually hears your prayers? Yes. Then, fight to be sober-minded, fight for self-control, because we have the ear of God, and God has the power to change every one of these situations. Through our prayers, this is important, through our prayers, God will either change the situation or God will change us. Through our prayers, God will either change our situation or he'll change us. In Acts, Peter was about to get executed, the guy writing this book. He was in prison. He was about to be killed. One of his friends was just killed. They had a prayer service. The Bible tells us the prayer service is what God responded to. He sent an angel and got him out of there. Jesus the night before his, or the night of his execution, he has his own prayer service in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prays that God would allow the cup to pass from him. God doesn't. What does Jesus say? Not my will, but your will be done. God didn't change Jesus' situation. Many believers in history, God didn't change their situation but instead he empowered them to go through it. God will either change the situation or God will change us. We need to pray like Christ, your will be done. Remember in chapter three, we talked about this a few weeks ago. God clearly says it might be God's will that we suffer. It might be God's will that you suffer. So again, we are not to be surprised when trial, fiery trials come our way. We are to be prepared. We are to get our mind right. 
so that we would finish well and that we would be a light for Jesus. And in prayer, God does something. He gives us peace for whatever's going on. In prayer, he empowers us by the Holy Spirit who lives and breathes inside of us to endure whatever would come our way. And if you're a Christian and you feel like you're being tossed around by every situation, God gives you an answer for this too. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says this, take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That's what it means to be sober-minded. Not to be reactionary, but to take the thoughts captive. So maybe you're somebody who is plagued by anxiety and stress, and I don't want to devalue your struggle, but you got to take the thoughts captive. It's not okay to stay there. He's calling you to more. So how do you take the thoughts captive? I, 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 um, there's a book I like. It's uh, not a Christian book, so, but the guy's name is uh, Chris Voss. Chris, he, he wrote a book called Never Split the Difference. He, for years, was the, the, the foremost negotiator for the FBI. He would be sent across the world to negotiate uh, trades for people, like what's going on in Israel right now. He would have been the type of guy that they sent over that. He had the most releases in history. He's still, still on record as with the most releases. Um, but one thing, the, he, he shows brain science on how we react to things. Maybe if you're one who's plagued by some of these things, this will be helpful for you. So when in a negotiation, when somebody starts getting hostile, one of the things he says is, he just names the emotion. You seem anxious. You seem angry. You seem upset. And they are anxious, they are angry, and they are upset. But when you do that, the mind has a reciprocal response where they don't, oh, no, we're not. And it just kind of drops the mood. For, for me, what I do, how I think about taking every thought captive, I name the emotion. Uh, Cody, you're being anxious. Cody, you're angry. Cody, you're this. By naming the emotion, it allows me, it helps me to take that thought captive so I don't respond based on that emotion. And when we live in a way where we're not sober-minded and we're not self-controlled, it diminishes our prayer life. It hinders our prayer life. The Bible tells us so right here. We are to be this for the sake of our prayer life. It's the tool that he's given. In the next few verses, we're going to see the need for us to be sober-minded and self-controlled. And it's not just for our sake, it's for the sake of others. God has given each of He's given each of us to each other. He's given us to the church to help in the trials that other people are facing. But here's the deal. If you're all wrapped up in your stuff, how are you going to notice her stuff or his stuff that they got going on? You're not. We have to fight to not get tunnel vision on whatever our problem is. Instead, that we would fix our eyes on Jesus so that we can see people around us as he sees them in need and suffering. I think we as Christians, we've all, especially in the last couple of years with the news cycles, we've got wrapped up in our own stuff so much so that we've probably lost our testimony with those who are closest to us. And we have to fight against that. And here's, 
This isn't in the Bible, but I'm just telling you, I think it'll help you. If you struggle with sober mindedness and self-control, I got to turn the TV off. Do you know that the goal of whatever news organization you watch is not to necessarily accurately report the news in a way that it tells you the whole story. It is to tell the story in a way that you keep watching. They want to raise your stress levels so that you keep watching. It doesn't matter what flavor of the news you're watching. They want the stress level to be high so that you click again, so that you look again, so that their advertisers are paying them. Watch it and turn it off. Be informed, turn it off. Like, you can't, you can't live in a news cycle all the time. When we get so worried about our politics and our our jobs, our money, our 401ks, our projects, our, our own insecurities. We get tunnel vision in such a way that we often will become ineffective in the life of our family and in our friends. Because here's the deal. They have their own fear. They have their own failure. They have their own insecurities. And do you know who God has given to help them walk through that? You. He's given them you. And you have to look up at them and love them. There's a, a lot of stuff going on in the world, but in spite of all of it, you must be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of your prayers. You must be sober-minded and self-controlled because God has given you to the church to help with the chaos of these other people's lives. We must fix our eyes on him instead of fixing our eyes on the problem. We must fight to be sober-minded and self-controlled for the sake of our prayer life so that we would not become ineffective in the kingdom. Because where, where does our power come from? God. The power of your witness will be gone without prayer. Without prayer, your ability to console, your ability to counsel, your ability to, to love will be diminished. You're going to be counseling and consoling people based on man solutions, what you could think up in the moment, not on God's solutions. And the last thing I want to say about it is, if you're someone who struggles with, with self-control and sober-mindedness, and how do you know that you struggle with this? Stress, anger, anxiety, rain. Work on the feedback loop. I know when I get ready to go in a situation, I'm, I'm prone to anxiety. I'll start telling myself the story over and over and over. Then the, the, the details stop getting as accurate as they were in the beginning. And I tell the story over and over and over. Then I start telling somebody, and I, I, I get on this loop break the loop, give it to God. God's the only one that can solve it anyway. Joe can't. Joe can't solve your problem, or whoever you're talking to can't solve your problem. God can. Take that feedback loop to him, give it to him over and over and over in prayer that you would take control. You would allow him to take control. We can do nothing without God. Therefore, we need to call on God daily in prayer and walk in the power of his spirit so that we would be ready for suffering and we would not fear everything. We have to take our thoughts captive and he will give us peace.
Let's look at verse 8. Loving the suffering. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Because of uh, the verbs in verse 7, it might seem that the most important thing about the passage is being sober-minded and self-controlled. But it says here, above all, love. I feel as if he's pleading with the reader that the only way we can make it in life, the only way that we can make it in suffering is because of love. So we need to constantly be stoking the flame of love. Love is the central theme of the New Testament. By constantly kindling the flame of love, we will have a testimony to the world of the love that God has for us by the way that we love one another. It's, it's, it's fire season. Yesterday I had a fire in my, in my fireplace. That's the word. I do words for a living, fireplace. So you start a fire. Will that fire just perpetually burn? No, you have to attend the fire or the fire will go out. Such is love in the church. You have to attend these relationships. You have to be mindful, being self-controlled and sober-minded, or the flame of love will go out in the church. There are churches all across America where there is no flame of love in it. Church, there is love here, but there will not be if we don't do the work of stoking the flame. When a ship is lost at sea, they see the light from the lighthouse. It's, it's a ray of hope in the darkness from certain destruction, isn't it? Your love for one another will be a lighthouse in the dead of night for souls lost at sea. People without Christ, they're lost and they're dying and going to hell and they need hope. And the way that you love one another shines hope into the world. The church is to be a lighthouse in the darkness. We have to fight to, 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 to not live and do the things that the world does. We have to fight that we would have a testimony of love in our church. And I talked about somebody with a disposition of, of, of stress and anxiety but I have a warning for you if you have a disposition of, of negativity. You need to understand this. Your constant negativity about your church, when you're sitting at the dinner table, when you're with your friends, when, when you're just making conversation, or whether maybe it's not your negativity, maybe it's just your gossip. Maybe you can't not say something about something. You always got to have something to say. These actions dim the light of Christ shining through you. This is the opposite of Christian love. And you might say, I'm just an individual who's predisposed to negativity. This is how my mom was. This is how my dad was. This, I, got, I got a little Irish in me. What if I told you I was predisposed to murder? That's my disposition is murder. Are we okay with me staying that way? It's not okay for you to just accept your sinful disposition. You have to fight. Fight for peace. 
If you're participating in these kind of actions, you are testifying to the world that there is no love in the church. And if you have the testimony of no love in the church, you're telling the world that there is no love in Jesus Christ. Your negativity and your gossip diminish the light. Your negativity and your gossip may have diminished the light that Christ would shine through you to a certain group of people that you love. Fight. Think about all the souls lost at sea in your life. Are they constantly being crushed by the rocks? Are they constantly being thrown around by the storms? You can be negative, or you can be sober-minded, and you can be self-controlled, and you can be prepared to love them in their suffering earnestly by watching the things that come out of your mouth. Most of our public-type sins, the root of these things are a lack of, y'all are tired of these words by now, sober-mindedness and self-control. But isn't it great that even when we fail in love, that Jesus' love towards us doesn't fail? Love covers a multitude of sins. Jesus will not forsake you because of your failure. And church, we are a collective group of sinners. I will fail you. I probably have already failed you. I will sin against you. You will sin against me. We must earnestly seek love and walk in forgiveness and fight against bitterness. We can't grow bitter towards someone who's wronged us in the body because what are we preaching about God? That he'll grow bitter against our sins. We must love each other earnestly and that love will draw people who've wandered away from the flock home and it will also draw those who are lost to the light. So finally... Let's look at verse 9. Showing hospitality to one another. Serving the suffering through hospitality. Hospitality is a practical application of love. And I don't have to define hospitality. We know what hospitality is. It's having people in your homes. The first century church was marked by hospitality. Hospitality was the thing. Uh, they, would, they would have people into their homes. They would have people at a table. And this was what was amazing. This was one of the things that proved that it was only God drawing these people together. You would, hospitality would separate classes. It would break down those walls. You would have a, someone from the Roman Senate. You would have a, a Gentile slave. You would have a Jew. You would have all these people that should never be in a room together sharing meals, loving one another. We should be welcoming people in our homes. And I think this is something the American church struggles with. We want to say our generosity equates our hospitality. You know, hurricane hits Haiti. We'll, we'll, we'll get there. The, the church will get there before UNICEF. We'll get there before uh, FEMA. We'll, we'll have more people there. We'll stay longer than they stay. We'll give more money than a, the American government to that situation. We do. The, the American church is the most giving organization in the world. Nothing comparable to, to what we give to disasters. But we're not so great about having people in our homes. 
Hospitality is in the home. You don't have to have a lot to be hospitable. I remember Jordan and I, we were in Tyler. I just got laid off from the oil field. We lived in this little duplex. I was making minimum wage as a, uh, working in uh, Chick-fil-A, and we were in this little college group, and we wanted to, 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 to love on these guys. Uh, we could only, have, the size of the home, we could only have like two or three people in the home at one time, and we would do hot dog Sunday nights. And they were the bad ones, bar S or bar five. Like, don't come at me with that junk. That's what we had. They were so bad that the broke college kids, they, they started bringing all beef hot dogs. <laughs> but we would work through the, they were excited about their t- time to come over to their house. We didn't even have a grill. We were doing it on a skillet. Like, but they were excited because of hospitality. Hospitality creates culture. Hospitality breaks down barriers. When I think about hospitality, I think about my parents Hospitality reflects the divine hospitality of God. My parents were hospitable to my friends. You know, you think about part of the promise of the gospel is that God is inviting us into our home. This is not to trash the, the, the uh, what translation is that? King James Version. There's plenty of that going around. Uh, but the King James Version has a really bad translation of um, in in, in heaven, there's going to be many mansions. Jesus goes to prepare a place. That's not what that says. Jesus says, in my Father's house, there are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. The story of the gospel is about God's divine hospitality. Think about how everything culminates in Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will all be seated at the table of the King. There will be a place for all of us. Hospitality. If we are to reflect the character of God, when we do host people, we can't host people grumbling. You know, most people feel like they're a burden anyway. I like, when I come to your house, like y'all are like, hey, make yourself at home, but I can't because I feel like I'm a burden to you. Like, thank you for having me over, but like, I just kind of feel that, like, oh, I don't want to make a mess, or I don't want to be in a way. And when you're grumbling and when you have a bad attitude when people are at your home, you're confirming what they already believe. That they are a burden and there's not a place for them. Do it without grumbling. This, is, this kind of hospitality is what makes me think about my parents. When I was a, a kid, they, they would have all of our, our friends in the home. And if, you have, if you're old enough to have uh, kids in the home, if you're a grandparent who's raising kids, I want you to listen to this. My friends were obnoxious because I was there with them. My friends were stinky. They were smelly. They were loud. They were, you know, y'all been around high school boys. Like, how much do they eat? And my parents, these kids would come because they didn't have a good home life. Right? We didn't realize it at first. I'm sure my parents did. Um, most of them were coming out of drug-addicted homes. They were coming out of uh, just really bad situations. My parents would have them over. They would feed them. They would let them stay for the weekend. They, they would take them to some of our holiday. They did it all without grumbling. These, these kids, they, they, they took them to church on the weekend. These kids, 
had someone not intervened with hospitality, they would be on the broad road leading to hell. That's where they would be. 15, 20 years later, these men are now believers. And these men will say the most influential people in their life were my parents for them coming to faith. They weren't doing anything other than cooking some, opening their doors, taking them to church. Hospitality is a tool that God has given us to love the world. And it will change people's lives if you'll just open your doors. So don't see these kids as a burden, even though they probably are. <laughs> see them as an opportunity to stamp their lives with the love of God. So last thing, the last, last thing was a lie. Verses 10 through 11, this will be very quick. Serving the suffering with your gifts. As each has received a gift, use it to, to serve one another as God, as, as a good steward of God's varied graces. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. It's expected that everyone be hospitable. Peter then turns his attention to how we can serve one another with our varying and different gifts. Each of us have different skills and different giftings, and we are to use them. Now, he only hones in on two. He hones in on service, and he hones in on speaking as an oracle of Christ, as an oracle of God. So let me talk about first speaking as an oracle. A more modern way to say this is speaking as if God said it. Speaking as an oracle is I want to be very clear about this. God has got blame for a lot of stuff he's never said. Somebody will come to me and say, God told me this. That's not what this is saying. I listened to some sermons in the last week. These people are standing up claiming things that God never said purporting to being oracles of God. The oracle of God is not just the place of the pastor, it's for everyone. So how do we speak when someone comes to us in need? Step one, get the word rooted down in you. So that when situations and problems arise, the Holy Spirit will draw these things back to memory. I mean, this is one of the pa passages that's the most molested in all the scriptures about love covering a multitude of sin. He's talking about people in suffering in a church. You have to do the work of being in the word so that when the time comes, you can speak as an oracle of God to those who are lost, those who are hurting, and those who are suffering. Because if you don't, what you're doing is you're speaking out of your own supply and out of your own ignorance as if it were wisdom. And you're leaving people in worse situations than they started in. Learn the word. 
Get in the word, study the word. That's why we go verse by verse. Like, it's so you can go, all right, man, I, I don't really know how to read this thing. Just start where we started. Go listen to some sermons. You, you, you at least get the idea of this. Learn this stuff. Learn Galatians. Learn Ruth. Learn, learn Peter. They need you. They need you to, to minister. And it's going to require you to be self-controlled and sober-minded, doing the work of studying in the quiet, doing the work of prayer when no one's looking. It's a lot easier to just spout off the top and say, God said so, than it is to learn the word. It says, serve wholeheartedly in whatever you do. When you serve people, you need to understand you're serving God first, you're serving them second. So whatever you're serving, whatever, however you're serving around this building, however you're serving in the community, you're not serving those people, though you are. You're first serving God. And because you're serving God, those people are being served. And you might be here and you're like, what Peter ask, is asking us is way, way too much. You're right. It is way too much. Being sober-minded, being self-controlled, loving, loving earnestly, uh, fighting spiritually, uh, uh, speaking as an oracle of God. Like, what is that? Like, who, who gave me the right to do that? God. Everything we're to do, we're to do through the supply of God, through the power of God. And where does that come from? Here's the Sunday school answer. Prayer. Jesus. You can tell whether or not a church is on their knees by the way that they serve, whether it's in the power of God or in the power of their own devices. Because the reality is our best works are filthy rags to God. My greatest wisdom is sheer ignorance. My finances to give to something, not even pennies in the grand scheme of things. But when supplied by God, all those things turn into power, wealth, for his kingdom and for his purpose forever and ever. Amen, right? If you will, bow your heads with me.